0: This podcast is funded by Ted Dintersmith, executive producer of the acclaimed documentary, Most Likely to Succeed, and author of the best selling book, What School Could Be.
1: I'm Josh Rapoon, and this is the What School Could Be in Hawaii podcast. Season one of this podcast series was hugely successful, with more than 13,000 downloads in 39 countries worldwide. Clearly, we tapped into a global hunger for ideas and stories from creative, imaginative, innovative, and curious educators and education leaders engaging students across the Hawaiian Islands. Here in August 2020, I am proud to say we have successfully launched season two. The first episode was my conversation with the remarkable Matthew Lynch, Director of Sustainability Initiatives at the University of Hawaii. Today, I'll be talking with the equally remarkable Laurie Perov, a teacher at Waikiki Elementary, which sits in the cool morning shadows of the iconic Diamond Head Crater, just east of Waikiki and Kapiolani Park on the island of Oahu. Lori Peroff has served in the Peace Corps in Uzbekistan and Tonga. She has taught fourth and fifth grade in Honolulu and in Taiwan. Her undergraduate degree from the University of Colorado is in the Arts and Psychology. She has a master's in elementary education from the University of Hawaii at Manoa, where she earned a 4.0 GPA. While at the University of Colorado, she did an exchange program in Ghana, West Africa. Lori has lived and worked on multiple continents. Her worldview is expansive and she has great range. Lori is an advocate for teachers as writers and has written extensively on life and learning for Honolulu Civil Beat, Medium, Education Week, and the National Board for Professional Teaching Standards. She is a distance swimmer and runner and loves to travel most of all, Lori is hugely respected in public, private, and charter school circles in Hawaii. Her voice is clear and strong. She is hashtag public school proud and a leading light for whole child instruction. And now, here's my conversation with Lori Peroff. Lori, welcome to the podcast. I'm
0: so happy to be here. Thank you so much.
1: So Lori, our format is 10 questions. So for the next hour or so, I'll fire 10 questions at you and you just knock them out of the park. Okay. All right. Sounds good. All right. So question number one, Lori, I know this might catch our listeners by surprise, especially educators who know you. But let's start these questions in Uzbekistan, which sits Mm -hmm. near the heart of Eurasia between Russia and Europe. Mm Twenty years ago, you served in the Peace Corps for about a year in Uzbekistan. And during that year, you established the first ever GLOW camp for Uzbek girls. So what is Mm -hmm. GLOW, G-L-O-W? And tell us the story of what you implemented.
0: Mm -hmm. Oh, thank you for asking that question. This brings me back to glory days. Um, GLOW stands for Girls Leading Our World, um, and we were a relatively new posting uh, for Peace Corps, so we had only had Peace Corps in that country for less than 10 years. We were not well known in Uzbekistan as, as Peace Corps was in other parts of the world, um, so we came in and uh, a group of young people just finding our footing and hoping to do some good. And we met people and we realized, wow, you know, there's, there's a need here. And there was these wonderful girls that we were meeting in our classes and meeting in our communities that were talking to us. um, That maybe they didn't have an opportunity to talk in that way to anyone else up until that time in their life, so a group of about fifteen uh, Peace Corps volunteers came together and hatched this idea of let's do a camp, let's bring girls together where we can talk about things about you know gender um, expectations, uh, dreams, goals, hopes. Let's do athletics, which some of these girls had never done, um, and and let's just see what happens. And so we all came together in a little town in the mountains and we took these about, gosh, it must have been about 60 girls, about 15 to 20 volunteer, American volunteers. And we, we stayed together for a week and we talked to them. We did workshops, we did community building, we did um, sharing, we, we played games, we did tug of war, we did, we played Frisbee. And these are things that these girls, some of them, had never ever done. This is a place where uh, Uzbekistan has a very, very special place in my heart, and there's so many wonderful things about it. But there's also things that you know are, are a challenge for women, um, girls. So it's a it's very Russified in that Islam is practiced and there are Muslim people, but it had been kind of suppressed for many, many years under the Soviet rule. So girls were wearing what they called a a Ramal, like they were wearing headscarves, but they could not uh, do the call to prayer openly because of the, the history of the country. So it was this really interesting place to be. And I was just out of college, you know, Really learning so much and so many questions that I just—it was eye-opening. So we got these girls together, and I learned about them, and they learned about us, and it was one of the most impactful experiences of my life. Um, and and I still stay in contact with many of those girls and many of those Peace Corps volunteers. And one of the most vivid memories for me was just playing Frisbee with these girls. They first had never seen a Frisbee. Second, they had never played just for playing. And one girl came up to me and said, you know, this is the most fun I've ever had. I don't usually laugh. And I thought, wow, that's incredible. And um, then uh, I think that the it, things changed uh, at September 11th when my service tour was cut short, um, beyond my control, usually Peace Corps is a two year service. Um, but when nine 11 happened, uh, we went into stand fast and consolidation and evacuation. And I left very, very quickly without properly having the opportunity to say goodbye to a lot of the people that meant a lot of things to me. So, um, but since then, the past 20 years, people have found me through social media. And it's just an incredible feeling when I have a student, I, a student of mine from 20 years ago, that says, Hey, Miss Walker, I was Walker at the time. I remember you. You taught me poetry. I remember you. You taught me how to play frisbee. I remember you. We had so much fun together. And it's just uh, something
1: that I feel so fortunate to have been a part of. Wow. that's I, I, I experienced something similar to that recently when a former student of mine from 26 years ago at Punahou dialed me up on Facebook. His name is Kevin. And, um, uh, you know, revealed to me that he had become a social studies teacher, partly inspired by the time we had spent together. And, whew, boy, that's, that's an emotional moment, Laurie, right? When you find oh, out it, something it, like that.
0: You just, um, you know, I think in the day-to-day, it's, there's so many things you troubleshoot and um, so many failures every day. And I think uh, many teachers, myself included, it's very easy to look at the things that didn't go the way we wanted them to. Mm. Um, and you don't get that uh, instant gratification on the daily. But when you have students reach out and say, you know, I remember you. You taught me this or I remember you now I do this because you, you encourage me to do it, you know, and it doesn't happen the next day. It doesn't happen the next year, sometimes 20 years later, but it happens. And that's when you think, Oh, this is, this is why I'm still here doing this work.
1: Right. Lori, how was your experience implementing a GLOW program in Tonga which was another of your Peace Corps experiences. How was that similar or how was that different?
0: It was very different. Um, but there were similarities. In Uzbekistan, girls, the culture in Uzbekistan it was very, very different than the culture in Tonga. Um, some ways that it was different. Uh, girls in Uzbekistan um, were, were homemakers. Um, and there was, you know, they, they took care of the home until they were married. And then once they were married, they took care of their home and their husband's family as well. Um, there's something called a Kaylin. Once you're married and you're a new bride, you're called a Kaylin and the Kaylin, um, had a lot of responsibilities and it was, a uh, something that I learned through my time there that being a Kalin was not always something that a young woman survived. Um, a lot of women would choose to end their lives during that time because of uh, the pressures on them, um, perhaps abuse from mm-hmm. their husbands and also their mother-in-laws. But it was very much a part of... Uh, it was common knowledge. This was a thing that we had. In Tonga, um, in contrast... Uh, women were very uh, powerful in their families. A lot of times the women were, um, you know, they, they ruled the roost in the families and they were uh, prominently respected members of society. And women, in my experience, took care of women. Um, the similarities between Uzbekistan and Tonga were that women stuck to themselves, women and men didn't interact the way they do in the West. So in Uzbekistan, men and women um, wouldn't be socializing. Um, Men and women wouldn't do things like exercise together. In class, boys and girls wouldn't be in the same group. Um, In Tonga, it's also similar. Boys and girls, men and women, um, have their own separate kind of circles that they function in. Women do a lot of the homemaking and a lot of the cooking, and the men have other responsibilities, the farming. but there's but there's kind of in in my experience, I saw in Tonga there was a nurturing of women. Women nurtured each other, whereas in Uzbekistan, it was an interesting kind of um, cycle of oppression where women would suppress each other. So in the glow camp in Uzbekistan, we would talk about, well, let's support each other. You know, we are here, we are women, we have this in common. Now we need to break the cycle to support each other so we can, you know, fulfill our dreams and goals and feel safe. In Tonga, it was more getting women to think outside the box because women had very prescribed um, duties. And so it was, um, you know, talking about okay, so this is what you do in your daily in your daily life. This is what your mother has done. You, there was a lot of weaving. Women were responsible for weaving. What are some other things you might be interested in doing? And would that be okay in your community? Um, so, in that regard, there were similarities and differences. Women in Tonga were, um, by and large, more joyful, more exuberant, more willing to share and speak out, but still kind of. Res- you know, constrained by societal expectations of
1: what a woman does and doesn't do. Mm, right. Wow, that's so fascinating. So oh, it was so fascinating. I can imagine. So, Lori, question number two, um, and we're going to shift, um, you know, geographies here. I'm, I'm super interested in the work you did in 2004 at the Franciscan Children's mm-hmm. Hospital in Boston in something called a latency program. So the mm-hmm. the dictionary defines latency as the state of existing but not yet being developed or manifest. So <laughs> what what was that Boston program and how did it serve the needs of kids in Massachusetts?
0: Wow, that's a great question. This is so fun. I'm loving going <laughs> a trip down memory lane. Yep. I you know, sometimes I forget that all these things kind of make me who I am today and I love thinking back on them. Um So I had just returned from Peace Corps um, in Tonga. I was back in Boston and I was looking for a job and I happened to find one right down the street from me at the Franciscan Children's Hospital in the psychiatric ward. I felt so underqualified. I couldn't believe I got the position. Um, It was a locked unit. I was working with young children. So latency, I'm not sure (laughs) how they... uh, came up with that, but I worked with the younger kids, I would say uh, 12 and and under, and they were also adolescents in the same locked unit, but we were separated um, by kind of a a hall hallway. Um, And I worked with students who had been removed from school because they were unsafe to themselves or others. And now remember, these are kids mostly under 10, um, And they, I was there as a liaison between their, with their school um, to uh, make sure that they, you know, continued to receive their right to a free public education. Um, And so I, I spoke a lot with teachers. I spoke a lot with counselors. I spoke a lot with parents and I spent time, you know, in the ward with the students. Now, when I first arrived, I had inherited the position from a woman who had built it up to this beautiful um, situation for the kids. But she left, and and it, I I was not her. So we kind of stumbled through it. I it was one of the most eye opening experiences of my entire life. I had ten year olds who you know you know routinely wet the bed, um, defecated in the bed. Um, with, you know, one student in particular would throw it around. I mean, and these are, this is, these are, these are the kids that need help, right? And here I am, I have a, a bachelor's in psychology and just a heart full of hope. And I went in there and I started a program that I still use today with my students. And it's the simplest thing you could ever do. I just called it walk and talk with Lori. And we would, if they demonstrated, um, you know, if they demonstrated that they were safe for a certain amount of time, they would earn an opportunity to walk outside the locked, uh, ward and outside in the hospital grounds and just talk, just talk. And it, it was, it was the most, um, it was the biggest incentive. They just wanted to be outside in the air, um, uh, maybe go on the, maybe go on the swings. Um, and so I found that just that walking and talking was so simple and so profound. And it's, it's kind of, uh, guided me through, you know, my whole career. It's like kids just want to be heard. Um, and, and that, and not being heard can bring a lot of trauma mm. and it's very healing they also need to move their bodies. So those two things together have been just a simple recipe for healing, you know, and um, it was, it was a really profound experience. And I still remember some of my students and, you know, some of them would stay for months, mm. just months and months and months. And some of them didn't have family to visit them. It was, you know, mm. it was, it was something I will never forget, and I'm grateful for what I learned from those students and those kids who just need to be heard. They need to move their bodies, and they need to know that someone cares about them.
1: Wow, Lori, that's so fascinating. I, I I feel like I'm on a train trip with you, and. And, you know, out ahead of us on this train trip is your experiences as a teacher, but where we've come from is Uzbekistan and Tonga and Boston and that you're you're being informed as a person along the way. And, um, it, you know, you are becoming who you are today. And it's, I just i am so fascinated by that idea of, you know, oftentimes I wonder that students come directly out of high school, right into college, go directly into a teacher training program, and don't have any experiences when they hit the classroom uh you mm-hmm. know in life and so we'll we'll get to that a little bit later um mm-hmm. but this is a this is a perfect segue to um the next question which is um at, at both moanalua elementary and waikiki elementary you work to implement a program called philosophy for children aka p for c um, you wrote, Laurie, in Honolulu Civil Beat in 2016, and I quote, it, I would like to invite a skeptic or even a non-skeptic into my classroom during our p for c time. I would encourage this person to listen and engage in the activity. This observer will notice the joy with which students form a tight-knit circle. The observer will notice how the students enthusiastically raise their hands to answer the question and, despite their excitement, respectfully lower their hands when a peer is talking. This observer will hear the voice of the child who hasn't shared anything in class this year until joining the P4C circle and be amazed at what he has to say. Trying to assess the value of P4C in the classroom is like trying to measure love. Some things aren't measurable. Some things speak for themselves. So, Laurie, what, what is P4C? How does it work? And and what steps can other teachers take to try it? And, and, sorry, multi-part question, in what ways does it manifest something we talk a lot about in education, which is student voice? Yeah, yeah.
0: Um, well, I feel, again, kind of unqualified to be the person to speak to this, but um, if you know, if, if love for the program and belief in the program is any measurement of qualification to speak on its behalf, I will do that. But there are so many other leaders of P4C that I've, and mentors I've had that I've learned from Dr. Toby Yost, Dr. Jackson, um, Amber Maciel, um, Dr. Ben, uh, so Ben Lukey. So those are wonderful resources for people as well. But uh, P4C to me, is, I mean, if, if the only thing you do all year is philosophy for children, you've done your job as a teacher. I try to, in my mind, I try to simplify it. p for c is teaching children to listen with empathy, to speak clearly and respectfully and thoughtfully, uh, think deeply, think deeply about what they're saying and what others are saying and to maintain a safe community. So I, I've, I've said this for a decade. Um, if, if after the year of, you know, being with me as your teacher, if you leave the classroom, being able to listen, speak, think, and, and maintain a safe community, then I've done my job. And, and that's in and its and P4C is a way to do that, and you have to be quite explicit in um, in the way you talk about those goals. So at uh, P4C, you sit in a circle. It's a student-led inquiry. The students will uh, generate their own questions, and as I mentioned in the piece I wrote in Civil Beat, there is no off limits topic. In fact. If a topic comes up that's touchy or challenging, or you think, ooh, maybe the parents won't like this one, even better because the kids need to talk and they need to talk about it safely. They need to listen to their peers. They need to be safe in uh, agreeing and disagreeing. um, And they need to think deeply about that topic. So um, the students come up with the questions. We vote as a community on what question we will discuss that day and we just talk. Um, And two things I've implemented recently that have kind of um, shaped my P4C practice are I start the class with, um, we review the four pillars, listening, speaking, thinking, and being safe. And every time, and we do this every week, every single time I'll say, who can tell me what this means? And every time a different student will say something beautiful. Every single time, and also by doing that, it, it, it creates an opportunity for students to hear the answers repeatedly, and some of those quieter students will raise their hand because, hey, I've already heard this question 20 times. I know the answer, and you'll see that it, it, it kind of brings in um, students that, you might, that might be reluctant to answer a question that they haven't heard before. So it's very repetitive. So that's the first thing. And the second thing is I say, okay, we're going to practice our listening now. And I read a poem. And I usually read a poem that I love. And um, it's a different poem every week. And they're not, I always tell them, boys and girls, you know, this is not a fourth grade poem. It's a poem that I love. And I think any person could love it. You might not understand it. Um, but just listen. It doesn't hurt to just let, you know, fill the air with beautiful words and just listen and we'll react. So I'll read something and we'll get some reactions. And that's like, um, that's just our listening practice. And then from there we'll go into choosing our questions. So I found that to be an interesting addition to my personal P4C practice, but P4C is lovely because it can be very personal. Some people, Somebody might like to start in a different way. Um, but I've found that poetry has has worked for, for me. Um, but I, I can't say enough about P for C, and some people I've had come do trainings and say, well, "Is't it just sitting in a circle and talking?" Well, yes and no. It is. but we um it, there's quite a depth in uh, the way we explicitly teach the thinking, speaking, listening, and safety. Um, there's a good thinkers toolkit that's available online that I use a lot. Um, so, uh, but yes, in, in some ways it is just sitting in a circle mm. and listening to what the students have to say about a topic of their choice.
1: Mm. So Lori, if I'm an elementary school teacher and I've never heard of P4C, um, and I might be a little bit reticent about just going to a website and and trying to figure it out, like, what steps can I take to maybe try it if, if I'm sparked by what I've just heard from you?
0: Right, right, okay. Um, okay, there are, it, it's, you know, in a sense, it is just sitting in a circle, but there's so many resources. Um, there's the Hero Academy at UH that has resources, um, but if you're just in your classroom, and you thought, wow, p for ci heard about that, or This girl's talking about it. What would be a simple first step? And here's what I think would be easy. Um, And now we're in the virtual era, so it's different. But um, you just ask the students, you know, what question would you like to talk about today? It can be anything. And you just generate a list of questions. I just personally, I just did this on Monday with my own students. And I'm looking at my list of questions because I'm here in my classroom. And here are some of them. What if the world was made of candy? Uh, what if everything was made of food? Um, what if you could switch bodies? Wow. What if money grew on trees? <laughs> um, what if you could stop time? Wow. Um, what if you could talk to animals? So you'll get these questions. You'll get, students have questions. So you might just have them... You know, in a virtual classroom or face-to-face, just write your questions um, and then uh, compile them in a visible way. Either it, face-to-face, you can do it on a whiteboard. Um, virtually, you can just type them all out on, a, on, a, on the screen and you say, let's vote. What do we want to talk about today? And you take a vote. And after you take the vote, then you say, you know, in order to have a really enriching conversation and discussion to hear all your ideas, we have to talk about listening, speaking, thinking, and being safe. Mm-hmm. So bring those up right away, and that might take some time. All and right. then say, okay, let's, let's, let's talk, and then you just talk about that question right there. But every time you come up with a new question, talk about the listening, speaking thinking and faith community and i call them pillars mm-hmm. they're uh and they kind of hold up the whole community and i i have on on occasion said which one of these is most important you know just find a partner and talk about that or if you're, you're in a virtual classroom go to a breakout room if that's available to you and discuss which one of these mm-hmm. four things is most important mm-hmm. and they come back and it's usually like well if you don't listen, then you won't know how to speak clearly because you're not reflecting. You don't. You're not thinking about what other people are saying, and it that itself leads to really enriching conversations. So, um, mm. just do it. That that would be my advice. Just do it, and then as you go along, reach out to some resources and um, and kind of build along the way. But it is student led, and that's something I think that um, mm. is easy to. Um, might be hard to let go of control. So if you're going to talk about what if you could switch bodies, you just go for it. If you, Or if you're going to talk about um, what if money grew on trees, just go for it. That's what they want to talk about and honor that.
1: Mm. You know, Laurie, the question uh, that I would have asked if I were in your class, I'm 62 now, but if I were... If I were in your class today, the question that I would have asked but would have been about talking to animals. And you would have discovered really quickly that I had read all the Doctor Doolittle books and that this question of talking to animals is a serious one. Um, what mm-hmm. does that mean to talk to animals? You know, it's an empathy question. Um, so mm-hmm. that just that just gave me goosebumps when you were talking about mm-hmm. that. Thank you. um, um I, I hope that people educators listening to this podcast, Will be sparked by this, and will reach out, and even if it's just across the aisle or, or across the, you know, to to another classroom nearby or a teacher who's nearby, and if you've heard about it, just reach out and ask about it, and then go forward from there. That's that's very very yeah. cool. Um, awesome. So so Lori at Hale um, Kula Elementary over four years between 2006 and 2010, you implemented two programs. The Hope Garden Learning Project and the Children Helping Children Project. So what were these two projects and and how did they develop the skills and habits and dispositions of the kids involved?
0: Oh, this is is so fun. Um, The first one I'll talk about is the Hope Garden. And... um, Kula is now called Daniel K Inouye. It's on Schofield Barracks, and most of the students are military impacted students. They at the time I was teaching there, they had either one or both parents serving overseas. Hmm. It was a very um, these these kids had a lot on their plate. so, I can't take any of the credit. The person who had the idea was my amazing colleague, Teresa Kramer, one of the loveliest people you could ever meet. Um, she's a special educator and she's very interested in gardening and her husband is, is as well. And it was just as simple as, hey, do you want to start a garden? Yeah, let's do it. Let's ask Jan Iwase, one of the most amazing administrators and people you could ever imagine and Jan said sure I think that sounds like a good idea next day literally next day it was a it was a Saturday you know Teresa's husband is out with not just like shovels but like a whole like drivable tractor hoe digging up like a 20 by 20 uh, tract of land to create our garden it was not small it was and so we we just had this land and um, we just started planting. So I think we took it step by step. Uh, Teresa and I did a lot of the upkeep of the garden initially as we got it going. But we had a farm stand. Um, we tried new food. Um, some students, I remember so clearly, that's how broccoli grows? I've <laughs> never seen that. That's, it's a, I thought it was on trees, you know, like things like that. And and, and it was awesome because they could... We, Part of our routine, our daily routine, was going outside and watering, weeding, and harvesting. And we just, there was no, like, strict schedule. You know, it was just, this is what has to be done. Let's do it. And we did it. And it was not um, always neat and tidy. There were some, you know, kids spraying each other with water and, you know, all that kind of stuff. But, you know, when when, when the year was over, when we first started that, the students in the reflections, almost everyone said, you know, what did you what do you remember from this year? The garden. I remember mm-hmm. the garden. Right. And we integrated so many different subjects. We went out and we wrote in the garden. We, uh, we it, this was at the beginning of my teaching career. And we just I just did things that I didn't know I couldn't do. So we were like chopping up dead fish and we were trying to say, okay, which fertilizer works? You know, the the Native American putting the dead fish in the ground or the the store-bought fertilizer and we do science. And, you know, we got complaints about the smell and it was just, but it was authentic and it was fun. And, you know, I'm just so grateful that I had an administrator that supported our vision. And I think the students were the ones who benefited from it.
1: That's awesome. I, I think oh, and I think that you should write. You should write another article, and the title should be "Doing Things I Didn't Know I Couldn't Do." That's a that's a that's a great. You know,
0: one. and Josh, I agree because I think right now we're right back where yeah. I'm right back where I was. You know, 12 years ago. I mean, it's time to do things that you don't know you can't do yet because it's a whole new landscape.
1: Absolutely, couldn't agree more. So what about the Children Helping Children Project?
0: Oh, yes. This was another one. Um, I didn't know uh, what kind of the limitations or liability was involving this, but I just reached out to the Kaka'ako Next Step Homeless Shelter and said, hey, you know, what do you guys need? And they sent me over a list, and they sent over a woman from the shelter that gave us a presentation, and we did a donation drive where we collected hygiene items um, shampoo, conditioner. Um, there was a whole list of them. Um, and then it was really cool because we, at first it was pretty simple. That first year we collected, we, we made these goodie bags and we actually went to the shelter. We drove in a car, but I drove myself with all the goodie bags. And it was after school, and I had about 10 families that elected to join, and we went to the shelter and delivered these things and got a tour of the shelter and met, and met the students that we were donating them to. Mm. Um, so that was the first year. The second year, we did it again, and we, I was able to kind of uh, integrate some more content where we then, you know, we, we sorted all our donations. We graphed our donations. How many, you know, how much shampoo did we get and how many how much conditioner? Let's make a graph. So it, it kind of evolved the next year. We went to the shelter again and dropped off and we did a tour. And that those tours were to me very, very impactful. And to the students, because when you go in, uh it's a it's a warehouse and the physical space that a family lives in is something like Six feet by six feet, and it's a uh, just all these like makeshift um, wooden walls that have been erected for these families. And my students could see where a family of four was living in a six by six uh, cubicle, and they could actually meet the real children living there. Now, what liability was this? I don't know. I I, I might have I might pause a little bit today. Um, But then I didn't, you know, we just went and they saw a real homeless shelter and they saw what it really looks like to live in that space. And um, it's been going for a while. I took a brief, I I went and taught overseas and then I returned and I started it up again. And I found out that Kaka'ako Homeless Shelter no longer has children. Um, They have a different facility for children. So last year we took our donations to the facility that services children We did another tour with families that came after school with me, just another carpool. And, um, you know, I think it's important to not just do the, you know, there's a lot of food drives and things that we do in school, but it's like, okay, great. I brought in my canned items. Where are they going? You know, to add that second part of it, like here's a child living here who is going to take a shower tonight using the shampoo and conditioner that you donated to them because, you know, because they don't have enough money to buy it themselves. Um, And this is really a human that you're helping. And just to make that kind of connection, I think is, is important. And I think that that's what we should be doing as much as possible. It's just going that next step, not making it symbolic, but making it real, you know, see the real person and see the real space so that then you can understand. And I've had families throughout the years that, still donate to these shelters because they started it in our class and that's a really nice feeling and some of them have even said, oh, and I went there for Christmas to serve the food So to just kind of start that connection mm-hmm. is really um, just so rewarding for me because actually it's quite simple but it's but it's impactful
1: indeed and and so a lifelong disposition in that case would end up being to actually know what's going on when you make a donation to something. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's, that's like super important over the life of, over your whole life that you would, you would live like that and that you would understand people in that way. That's, that's Mm -hmm. very, very unique. So Laurie, we're we're actually at question number five here and then we'll take a break. Um, Mm -hmm. So I am deep into the recently published book by Posse Salberg and Bill Doyle titled, Let the Children Play. Um, mm. Salberg and Doyle come out of the gate in this book like a couple of, you know, super amped up MMA fighters. They're swinging <laughs> really hard at stressful, standardized testing, stressful test prep, rigid siloed learning, and most importantly, the elimination of play in our schools in favor of academic preparation. So implicit in their argument right out of the gate is a critique of standardization. So Laurie, what are your thoughts about all of this? What are your thoughts about play and about where we've come to uh, you know, here in 2020 in terms of elementary school education? Yeah, yeah,
0: that's, um, that's a big question. Um, so many people, um, myself included, you know, I'm kind of a, in some ways, old school, are tied to the the standards. Um, you need to know your multiplication facts and you need to recite them quickly. Or, But in, in my case, it's interesting because I think I know how important play is, but I still have this nagging little part of me, especially with my own children. Like, why don't you know your multiplication people? <laughs> so it's, Um, It's kind of this give and take and push and pull, but um, I think that it would be books like this are so important to help educators kind of validate, yes, what you feel is important in play and what you feel is important in group work and collaboration and um, creativity and all those um, amazing activities that you create with those in mind. Those are not just fillers. Those are the real learning is taking place there um, and kind of help us free ourselves from the, you know, being constrained by, well, I have to hit X, Y, Z standards because um, I think that we are hitting the standards when we're doing these activities. I do an activity every year and this year I have to be extremely innovative in um, implementing this because it's, because of the way learning is now but it's called cardboard challenge and basically what you do is you bring in a bunch of cardboard some you know a hot glue and whatever other materials you want and you make a cardboard game and we do that for two weeks and the classroom is a disaster and this little part of me in my mind is thinking oh man you know what about you know what about the multiplication tables what about fractions but it's all there it's all there so um I think that when we we get more research and we get more experts saying, yes, you learn from play. Students learn from play. It will help the teachers be better teachers, right? We won't feel so compelled like, oh, I'm not doing my due diligence when I let them do this activity where they're playing and troubleshooting and failing and their their cardboard thing is crumpling down to the ground and your classroom is full of stuff everywhere and the janitor's You know, two weeks you have to keep bringing them, you know, like stones because your classroom is such a disaster that that is a meaningful learning unit. They are learning all the things you want them to learn, except for now they're totally engaged rather than sit and fill out this worksheet so that I can grade it and put it in my grade book. You know, so um, these types of resources that are coming out are, I think, improving the educational system so that teachers can kind of finally say, oh, yes, you know, what I thought was important is important, you know, and now, now it becomes, you know, how do we measure it? Because there's always that question of how do we assess? So that's a discussion that educators need to get into is, you know, how do I assess this uh, learning when it looks so different than a test? or a worksheet, you know, but, um, those are all rich discussions that we should be having. And many people are having. So, Hmm. um, it's, you know, I think that I'm really feel really validated when I have learned more research and books that are coming out about the importance of play. Actually last year at YCC school, our amazing principal, Bonnie Tabor, uh, experimented with a, a day of play. So it was this hotly debated topic, you know, in our staff, uh, meetings of, should we do it? How do we do it? What do we do? And essentially she just said, let's just do it. And all day students had free reign of the campus and they just played. They did whatever they wanted. And the the one rule we had was, you know, don't intervene unless it's a safety issue. And for a whole school day, the kids roamed around talking with each other, playing with each other. And it was, it was beautiful, but it's so interesting that that was a huge, you know, milestone for the school, like you know, to let the kids play, right. but, um, it was a step in the right direction.
1: Wow. That's remarkable. Um, and there yeah. wasn't anything during that day that needed to be measured, right? Laurie?
0: No, I mean, it was, it spoke for itself, you know, the, the kids, I mean, they, they haven't been, they hadn't been, and I have my own two daughters at Waikiki school and that day was by all accounts, the best day ever. So that,
1: that's enough for me. Right. Exactly. Yeah, that's fantastic. So, okay. Hey, everybody. Stay with us after this short break. We will come back with more questions for Laurie Peroff. Stay with us. This is Guy Kawasaki. If you want to learn how to be a remarkable person, please check out my podcast, Remarkable People, I interview people like Roy Yamaguchi, Margaret Atwood, Jane Goodall, Stephen Wolfram, Stephen Pinker, Ariana Huffington, and Steve Wozniak. The point of the podcast is to help you become a little bit more remarkable. To learn more, go to remarkablepeople.com. Thank you. Hawaii's business people and professionals want to support our public high school students across the state, like me, Law
0: Yagovich, a senior at Kuku High School. And Hawaii's teachers and other educators want classroom speakers, curriculum advice, contest judges, mentors, and other support
1: from businesses and nonprofits. The Climb High Bridge is Hawaii Department of Education's official platform to connect the two communities. It's like Match.com,
0: specifically designed to connect businesses and schools. Learn more by sending an email
1: to info at climbhigh.org. That's spelled C-L-I-M-B-H-I dot org.
0: Hi, friends. Toy Hirschman here from the Entre Ed Talk podcast. I am super excited to support the What School Could Be in Hawaii podcast hosted by none other than the amazing Josh Rapoon. And I also want to give a big shout out to all of the incredible educators in Hawaii who are doing unreal things in the entrepreneurship and design-based thinking spaces. I hope you all subscribe and listen to What School Could Be in Hawaii. And also, hey, why not check out the EntreEd Talk podcast where we interview stellar entrepreneurial educators and entrepreneurs from across the country and globe. I cannot wait to connect with you.
1: Hey everyone, we are back with Waikiki Elementary educator and education writer, Lori Peroff. So Lori, question number six. Um, in January of 2018, you began writing an education column in one of our local online newspapers, Honolulu Civil Beat. So I wanna tackle this fact in two parts. So here's part one. So share with us a few of the columns you were most proud of or happy about, or that had the most interesting reactions from your readers.
0: Well, I guess I'll start by saying I was totally shocked that I was even invited to take to have the opportunity to write the Civil Beat and extremely grateful. Um, the way it came about is I just kept writing community voice. <laughs> um, I kept uh, sending in uh, submissions for community voice because I just like writing. And eventually, after so many, they said, hey, uh, do you want to try to, you know, write a column? And I thought, are you kidding? <laughs> like me? But, I, you know, of course, that was like my dream come true. Um, and the first column I wrote, I got the idea, actually, from Cece, our uh, current teacher of the year, Hawaii State Teacher of the Year, and it was just in a conversation, we were talking about all the the articles and pieces that were written about why teachers are leaving uh, teaching in Hawaii. Why are they abandoning uh, this profession? And she said, just a casual conversation one day, you know, it'd be interesting to Hear the other side. Why are people staying? So I thought, that's a really, really great idea. So I was really totally new to uh, writing and I still am new to writing, but I just uh, took the opportunity to talk to my friends and colleagues and fellow educators and said, hey, you know, you've been teaching for 15 years. Why are you still teaching? And, or, you know, I talked to my daughter's um, kindergarten teacher. I said, you've been teaching for 30 years. Why are you still teaching? And I compiled all these, uh, responses and what it, uh, kind of culminated in was a, a bit of a feel good piece. Uh, it wasn't my intention, but it, it, it felt really good. You know, it was like some of the things that people said, well, I teach because I, I love learning, you know, it keeps me young. I'm, I'm, I'm always active. I'm always thinking And it, you know, in some senses, it's um, selfish. I'm keeping myself young and youthful and learning because I, I love learning with the students. Um, another, some other people said, you know, I'm doing it because I believe that, you know, to have, uh, an educated, uh, educated people, it keeps our democracy running smoothly and it keeps our nation great. We need to have an educated citizenry to keep our, uh, our, our United States wonderful and great the way it is. And, um, and then uh, the one that really sticks with me its kind of um, the one I'll never forget was when I talked to my daughter's kindergarten teacher who had been teaching for 30 years. And he said, you know, you've been doing this a long time. How come you're still teaching? What, what, what makes you stay in this field or what has kept you here for 30 years? And she said, you know, when I'm old and I'm, you know, and I look back on my life, I wanna I wanna know I made a difference. And with teaching I I know I have. And I thought, wow, you know, that's that's it. You know, that's you know, above all the other things that we might want to change about the teaching profession um, for this one woman, and so it resonated with me as well, is when you look back on your life, have you done something worthwhile? Have you made a difference in this world, a positive impact? And and to her it was yes and i think to so many of us it's yes so um, that, that one was um that that got a lot of positive feedback i think people just wanted to hear some good news hmm. so that that was one and then the other one that got uh, a bit that i remember kind of resonating with people was um, they i learned a lot about writing during this process the name you put on your is not the name they're going to publish it under. So I called it something different, but Civil Beat called it, when students go home, we go to our second job. Hmm. Um, So that was, to me, like kind of a no-brainer. Doesn't everybody know that teachers have to work two or three or four jobs to support their family and themselves in Hawaii? Like, why do I even have to say this or write this? But it was, I think, it was very well received. Like, you're right. You know, spring break is coming up and, you know, as people pack for their trips to the mainland, it don't assume teachers are cause they're going to work, you know, many, many of them. It was the same kind of situation where I, some of my friends were talking about, Oh yeah, I can't go out. I got to, you know, I got to work. And I thought, I wonder how many teachers have second jobs mm. and everyone I talked to everyone I talked to did. And, and kind of the second piece of it was like, what if we created a system where all these beautiful talents that teachers have, you know, I had a Pilates instructor, a friend who's a Pilates instructor. I had a friend who's a yoga um, instructor, a friend who's a surf instructor. I have friends who do writing workshops, all these beautiful gifts and talents and passions from the teachers. What if we could just kind of funnel them not outside the school but inside the school community so that we're we're helping the teachers make a little bit more money but we're also helping enrich the school community so i still believe that very strongly we should keep those talents in service that you know to help the teachers and the students
1: yeah wow that's a what a fantastic idea i love that idea um Mm -hmm. so laurie here's the second part of of this question So uh, at the online platform Medium, you wrote about being, quote, fired or dropped by Civil Beat because your editor was, and I quote, looking for a more eyes wide open, edgier treatment of classroom issues, dealing with the bad as much as the good. So in effect, you did not have enough of an edge in your columns, and this is a bit of a button issue for me because I stopped reading Civil Beat because the articles were so relentlessly critical of education, um, there just was no other side of it there. So talk to us about your response on Medium to being dropped as a regular columnist at Civil Beat. Oh yeah, um, well,
0: so it was not, um, that, being a let go of civil beat. Um, I was, I was really embarrassed because I hadn't, you know, I'd never been fired before and it just felt really strange. And I actually truly loved it. You know, I loved the opportunity to share my thoughts and reflect, but, but it was work, you know, it was kind of like, Oh, wow. It's next month. I have to, you know, think of something. But what really got to me was the, the, the phrasing and the quote you just shared about, um, dealing with the bad as much as the good and an edgier approach, that's a direct quote. I don't know if that's illegal, but, you know, that goes along with doing things, you know, you don't know you're not supposed to do. But so that was truly what the editor said to me. And um, I thought it just infuriated me because, you know, who is this editor or any editor to tell a teacher that you have to talk about all the bad stuff? you can't tell us what's really important to you because, you know what, that's not important to our readers. But wait a second, if you don't provide it to your readers, they don't know. So, and, 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 and I, I respect and appreciate Civil Beat greatly, and I understand, um, or, or I, I guess maybe not understand, but I, I, I respect their choices. However, uh, you know, teachers should write, and teachers' writing should be read widely. And it should not just be me. It should be any teacher because so much of our stories are told by others, by reporters, um, by people who are not in the classroom, people who do not know what it looks like, feels like, sounds like, you know, and, and that's what we're missing here. Because, if, you know, we, we don't need a mouthpiece. We need teachers who are writing that are then sharing their direct account. So, and, and, you know, and some things, you know, some things are things we might want to change. We might want, there are some bad things, but guess what? There are good things too. So the thought of just being fired because it wasn't clickbait was infuriating to me. And to have a teacher's voice removed because it didn't, uh, because it wasn't talking about, you know, all the bad things going on in public education was, um, very disappointing. So I, I did you know, share with them, you know, thank you so much for the opportunity, but I, I truly hope that you don't overlook bright spots just for mm. clickbait because there's a lot of great things going on in public education and your readers deserve to know it. Um, you know, because mm. it really does shape public opinion about education.
1: Right. Right.
0: So, um, it's kind of their, you know, civil civic responsibility to, to share the bright spots. Mm. Um, um, and it, and it shapes policy as well. So I was really, um, it, uh, that was a, a powerful, like I, I had a lot of feeling in that piece. It was more just like a, you know, just a release. But I, I think mm-hmm. the, the major message is teachers, write, write it all. Write the good, the bad, the ugly, write it all because it is, you are the only one that can say it. Mm-hmm. Like, and, and every teacher story, every single thing that happens in the classroom, that is the data. And if it's not uh, shared with the public, they're missing so much of what's going on because the teachers and the students are the only ones who can share it.
1: Yeah, there's two thoughts, Laurie. One is that I am very, very encouraged here in 2020 that Civil Beat now has an education beat writer who really understands what fair and balanced means. She's Mm -hmm. she's covering everything, no matter uh, good, bad, indifferent, and I'm very encouraged by that. Um, And -hmm. at the same time, I'm also super encouraged, Laurie, by the fact that teachers are using social plat, uh, social media platforms like Medium, like Facebook, like Twitter to get their voices out there so that people who are following can really understand what's going on. So in general, I, I feel much more encouraged and I'm back to reading Civil Beats again. <laughs> um, so. yeah, I read Civil Beats too.
0: Yeah. I, 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 you know, It's, a, it's, a, it's on, the, on the things I read every morning. So right. yeah, I love it. Right.
1: So Laurie, um, I grew up on the Windward side of Oahu, the youngest of nine children. And my wow. family, my family always, always ate dinner together at night and conversations typically resembled, you know, Socratic seminars. Um, you wrote a wonderful piece on Medium titled Food for Thought, The Benefits of Family Dinner. So I wonder if you might weave your thoughts in that Medium piece about family meals into your philosophy of education and learning. Like, how do we bring the benefits of family meals into school culture, if you know what I mean? Like, what are the correlations?
0: Yeah, well, I think it, that's a good question. I think it comes with the philosophy of, you know, listening, right? Um, And it kind of comes back to, you know, uh, students having voice and taking, you know, really acknowledging that that time when you are talking and sharing is a valid time you know not i think that you know we talk about formative assessments summative assessments and we have worksheets and workbooks and online programs and all those things um have their place but it's all coming back to you know the importance of actually listening thinking speaking and being safe so for me, uh, there's been some really fantastic programs that we've experimented with at Waikiki School that actually bring families together at dinner time at our school to do something like that, to come together as a school community and sit and talk together. And it was like, it was called the, I think it was called the Family Dinner Project. There's actually an, a national program called the Family Dinner Project. So, wow. But Yeah, yeah, it's really cool. We've kind of had to take a hiatus from that, but um, it it has happened here, and hopefully it will happen again. Um, But also, what I do, my philosophy for children, um, there's a lot of discussion in uh, educator circles about homework, right? And so I am of the belief that uh, I don't want to assign any busy work homework. Uh, Actually, I'd rather not assign any homework but something that I that I always do assign every week is, um, okay, here's what we talked about in our philosophy for children's circle. It is a dinner discussion topic. Take it to your house and talk to your families about it at dinner. Now, that, that's like I said in the piece. It's hard because not everybody eats together. Right. Not everybody has time. Not everybody has space. Um, but, it, you know, it's something that I encourage the families to do You know, here's a dinner discussion. It might be a breakfast discussion. It might be uh, some other time. It's a car discussion as you're driving. You know, talk about it. Hear what your child has to say. Hear what he heard from his or her classmates. And talk about it. And then there's a piece that says, you know, the families can, they write down on this little form, like, what they said about the topic we all discussed. So it kind of invites the families into this homework, you know, and the homework is talking. And, um, and then there's a written component where the, the parents, you know, have to write down, Oh, we talked about what it would be like if you switch bodies and that, mm. you know, I thought it would be a good idea, but my husband thought it would be a terrible idea. <laughs> so, you know, so they, there is that part of it. So it's just kind of coming back to, you know, prioritizing and what's important and uh, back to the four things, listening, speaking, thinking, and being safe. Mm. You know, there's, there's all these other content things that we cover, but the overarching Uh, things that will never change are those four things and you can apply them in any way. And, um, you know, during this pandemic, I think it might be a great time for educators to kind of leverage the situation we're in and say, okay, your homework is talk about this with your family and record their responses and bring it back to us on Friday and we'll all share what our families said, you know, because uh, we're all together now we're we're at home a lot um yeah. so maybe that could be a way to you know leverage this kind of new new situation we're in and invite the families into our discussions
1: mm, right right wow that's so that's so cool Laurie, i i feel like you know once again we're back on that train again and and we've come from uzbekistan and tonga and and boston and and what's Mm -hmm. emerging here in this episode is, you know, your philosophy of education and who you are as a person and what you value and what your practice is as an educator. Um, That's very, Mm -hmm. very cool. So um, Laurie, I taught at La Pietra, Hawaii School for Girls for eight years and Mm -hmm. La Pietra is just down the road or up the road from Waikiki Elementary. I'm also Mm -hmm. the, the very proud father of a daughter who teaches kindergarten in California. And you, you wrote a yeah you wrote a piece uh, on mother.ly um, about gender expectations, and I want to read a quote from your article. So here's the quote: We need to think deeply on the small everyday things we say and do to begin to rectify the massive wrongs that have been done to our daughters, sisters, mothers, grandmothers, wives, and friends for far too long. We need to rethink how we talk to our girls to avoid reinforcing gender stereotypes that have contributed to where we are today. So Lori, what does this quote mean in the in the broader context of public and private and charter school education cultures? Like when you when you talk about where we are today, where are we today uh, well, in our schools? And, yeah, and what what steps can teachers take to move us to a better place? On this gender expectation question,:
0: Yeah, this one's really um, this is a this is a tough one because i I'm still in it thinking of it, and the the piece that I wrote came very you know, a lot of my pieces come you know kind from my heart, and it started with my daughters, and I was kind of um making some startling discoveries about how I spoke to them, and not only you know first it started with listening to how other people spoke to them. And I thought, wow, you know, they're always being compared to boys, but that's so, what does that mean? You know, what, what do you mean by boy behavior and girl behavior? And then I realized that I was also making, saying things that maybe uh, communicated not a message I didn't want to communicate, like sit like a lady or, you know, some, things like that, that just kind of came out or, oh, oh, yeah, she's a tomboy, you know, those kind of things. But really all these behaviors that our girls exhibit they're, they're not boy behavior or girl behaviors. They're just behaviors. Um, but we're so entrenched in kind of our gender expectations that the, the smallest things we do, the way we speak, um, can really, uh, contribute to, a, a kind of a, a child assuming a role, right? You know, if you, if you constantly hear at school, um, oh, the, the, they're just being boys or, you know, watch out for the boys at recess. They're so rowdy. Then it's like, okay, well, boys are rowdy and, and girls are, you know, not maybe. Right. So I think, you know, I remember being in graduate school at UH and um, I was being observed by my, um, one of my professors. And one of the things that I got feedback on, on was you keep calling everybody guys. Don't call them guys. Um, think about your words. And I was kinda of missed, like, <laughs> that's just how I talk, you know, like yeah, what do you me mean? Too. I have to mm-hmm. sit, you know, but I think, you know, it's a very, very valid point. Um and and it's it's very complex now too, because we're we're kind of uh emerging into a better understanding of gender. You know, what do you mean, you know, boy, girl, what what's a boy thing, what's a girl thing? Should we, you know, into dividing the groups okay, boys you know, boys go over here, girls go over here, or, okay, boys turn in your papers first and girls turn in your papers, you know, just that way of kind of uh, structuring your classroom uh, procedures. We're learning, like, that's not really inviting or acknowledging or honoring all our students. You know, we're learning this now. And I think some of the students we have are, are asking those questions of themselves. Like, who am I? Um, Why do I feel so strange when she says, okay, girls go over to this side and I don't feel like I should go over there because I'm, you know, I was, you know, I look, you know, I look like a girl and I have the biology of a girl, but I don't, you know, those kind of questions and kind of understanding that it's, it's much less black and white than what we first thought. So I don't really have an answer, but it kind of goes back to just reflection and trying to be aware that, you know, we all want to honor and celebrate and appreciate all of our students. And that kind of, you have to be very deeply reflective because the smallest things we say matter a lot, um, even down to, you know, saying guys instead of friends or, you know, different things you might say that are more inclusive. Mm. So it's, um, I think that after that question, I think I'm emerging with more questions, but uh, I think it's just really important to Mm -hmm. be aware again of the, you know, the harm that teachers can unwittingly do Mm. to their, the the kids entrusted to their care.
1: Yeah. The guys thing is an interesting thing for me. I mean, I I say that as naturally as I breathe and uh, then then it was pointed out to me and I, I shifted to using folks. So, hey folks, you know. Um, yep. And that feels a little bit more comfortable, but still, you know, it's it's difficult to reverse something that you've been doing all of your life. But here we are in this moment and, and we're waking up to all kinds of things. So that's that's super interesting. Yeah, yeah
0: definitely. It's, it's hard work.
1: Yeah. So, Laurie, awesome. up to now, we've not tackled the COVID-19 pandemic directly, mm-hmm. which was actually by design. Sometimes I feel like we are awash in a thousand opinions and contentions across so many media platforms, you know, so much so that it has become like white noise. Um, mm-hmm. But for all those elementary school educators out there listening to this episode, what are your thoughts on learning in the time of a pandemic? What are some insights from your side of the equation that might support other educators struggling to, to master this moment?
0: Um Okay, I think for me, the first thing is we're not going to master this moment. We're just going to uh, live in it and be a part of it and uh, shape it. Um, and I, I've kind of I thought about this a lot, and I'm I even reluctant to say it, but I think in some senses, the pandemic is in some ways making me a better teacher. And I hope the students feel that way, too and i'll explain that a little more this year as we started our year everything was totally different the students were not coming face to face it was dropped on us in last minute we had to pivot again but what we did as a grade level and my school and i have to shout out to my colleagues and my principal just amazing supportive people what we did was we had you know one-to-one virtual meetings with the families and they went to you know about a half hour 45 minutes somewhere even an hour where we you know arranged a virtual meeting with each family and we talked to them and we actually uh, talked to some of the folks over at Hawaii Technology Academy and they helped us understand what worked for them because they've been doing this longer than we have and we talked about the idea of being a learning coach and setting up a learning space um, but really, the beauty of it was that, hey, I know these people really well, even before we start class. You know, I talked to the mom, I talked to the dad, I talked to the kid, and we talked at great, great length. And the first question I asked in all these meetings was, I first started with a student. How do you feel about school and distance learning this year? And And I heard, they told me, you know, so that's one thing I think is better hmm. before the school year even starts. I know that I've made a connection with the families and the students. Right. Um, second thing I'm optimistic about is small groups. You know, so we're doing these virtual, these virtual meetings. And I have an amazing uh, administrator who's allowing us to use Zoom and breakout sessions. And we're doing it. So kids are going into these breakout rooms. They're talking together. I am going into a breakout room with a small group of three kids. So smaller groups. We've also divided our groups, um, so that we have an A and B and they are, I have 10 students in one group and 10 in another, which we've always wanted smaller class size. Right. And now we have it. Um, it is different, but we have it. So, um, making that parent connection, smaller groups, individualized instruction and elevating student voice. So now we don't have the paper pencil stuff as much as we used to. So now we have Flipgrid and Padlet and again, back to the administrator giving us, you know, support and saying, yep, if you think that's a good platform for your students to share their voice, go for it. So, we, so we're so we doing it. You know, kids are sharing their work on Padlet and BookGrid. They're recording their voices. For the EL students who have trouble writing, they can speak it. Um, so these things, I think, are making me a better teacher. Now, are there drawbacks? Yes. Do our students miss each other? Yes. Um, so you know, it's kind of a process, but I'm starting with just making a strong, strong family connection and making as many small group talking opportunities as I can. I think that's what the kids and myself need right now. Mm.
1: That's fantastic, Lori. Thank you. That's, those are, those mm-hmm. are very specific suggestions that are actionable for sure. Um, that's, that's great. So, Lori, we've actually arrived at question number ten. This is amazing. It's mm-hmm. gone by so fast. Um, yeah. So this one's this one's kind of a big one. Um, so almost two years ago, Lori, our whole East state Department of Education, which oversees close to three hundred public and public charter schools, um, and that means mm-hmm. thirteen thousand teachers and approximately one hundred eighty-five thousand students. Um, embarked on a statewide plan called the Five Promises. Um, Mm -hmm. The goal was, and is, to make good on these promises by 2030, which is just 10 years from now. So the five general promises include the Na Ho'opena'ao protocols, Mm -hmm. equity, innovation, school design, and empowerment. So frankly, Mm -hmm. Laurie, I am encouraged by the idea that instead of stressing over achievement uh, stressing over achievement gaps we're talking about making real promises to our kids so mm-hmm. let's let's imagine it's 2030 10 years from now mm-hmm. and you are writing a series of articles for the national board for certified teachers and mm-hmm. what are you seeing 10 years from now what are you feeling what are you experiencing in hawaii's public schools that will come through in these future articles?
0: Mm. Well, what I'd like to see, um, there's so many things. Um, I'd like to, and I think we're in a really, really pivotal point right now in our education system where I think here in Hawaii and nationwide and worldwide, frankly, education is gonna be kind of flipped around, shaken up and reevaluated it's kind of been forced upon us, but we've kind of, at least I have wanted to, to ask a lot of these questions for many, many years. So what I'm hoping we'll see in 10 years in Hawaii is a lot more equity. We're we're having some issues with that now, um, and it's become very apparent in the current pandemic where some students have everything they need to learn and some students don't. And um, I think if we, I think in 10 years, the, the, the most, the best possible outcome would be every student has the, the technology and the access that they need to learn from any place. Um, school design, uh, we're talking about building community uh, organization partnerships and apprenticeships. I would like to see a lot more of that at every level. And as an elementary educator, I'd like to see that starting Younger. So what I would like to see in 10 years is, okay, we have this, um, for, you know, maybe a whole day out of the week is just your internship day. Maybe you go and work in the garden. Maybe you go and work in the calf. Maybe you go and work over at the zoo nearby, like a whole, you know, build that into school design. That's, that's what we do. And it can start young um, and then you kind of streamline the way to incorporate community partnerships. You know, there's a lot of barriers that could hold that up. So if we streamline that, um, that would be great for all students. And I'd like to see that, um, empowerment. I would like to see teachers empowered to do these, uh, and the students empowered both to these, do these self-directed, um, lessons of study. And that should be valid and we should have, a. a plan for that, and, and and I think that would be the most impactful type of learning that we could have for our students. I would also like to empower and streamline the way that teachers could take sabbaticals to um, to get the, the, the professional development that they want. And not just from a 20 minute course online, but from taking time off, traveling, or staying here and just really engaging in something that will then enrich their uh, ability to teach the students. And I know that that the, the way that students that teachers take sabbaticals need to be streamlined, and it should be encouraged. Hmm. I think that would really enrich hmm. everyone. Um, and then innovation, you know. The sky's the limit, right? So we talk about project-based learning, um, really utilize the things we have here in, our, in, our, in Hawaii and that other places don't have at all. I mean, we could have student scientists, you know, discovering things that, that could help our island home. So, and then again, the last would be Hawaii. Like, let's leverage all the wonderful people that we have here. We don't need to look outside for people to teach us. Uh, what we have right under our nose. So bring our kupuna into the classroom and bring our students out of the classroom to spend time with the kupuna, to talk with the kupuna, to learn from them. So um, Mm -hmm. a lot more of all of that and a lot less money spent on standardized testing and just really uh, um, legitimize these important ways of learning Mm -hmm. and have it not be so uh, test-based. Right. Because that's where a lot of our money and effort and uh, everything is kind of all wrapped into. So if we could just kind of blow the top off school, it would it would be great for everyone.
1: You know, Lori, you mentioned Cecilia Chung earlier in this conversation. She's our 2020 Hawaii State Teacher of the Year. Um, and I'm very proud to say she's a former student of mine from La Pietra. Oh, that's um, so great. Yeah, it's so awesome. So Cece and I were having coffee a couple of years ago, and I remember asking her, she was teaching at Caimilo Elementary, and I said, Cece, like, if, if we're to throw out the ways that schools are evaluated and let you... Develop a a top five list. What are the top five things that you would want your school to be evaluated on? And she placed in that top five list community connections, meaning Mm -hmm. that when it comes time to evaluate the success or the progress of your school, it's the number of community, really authentic community connections that you have to businesses, to nonprofits, to programs, anything that might actually benefit your school. And Mm -hmm. I I was reminded of that uh, while you were talking about those kinds of connections that you have. Like, what are some of the really cool connections that Waikiki Elementary has with its surrounding community?
0: Oh, wow, Waikiki is doing really well in this uh, capacity. Um, We have a strong relationship with the aquarium. Um, We have students that go there once a week uh, in the past years, and now we're working on on a way of kind of figuring that out now. We also have a connection with Papahana Kuaola, Ola where they, that's basically the whole fourth grade curriculum was doing a 10 week study where we go on hikes, we go to the lo'i, we, you know, we have the kufuna come into the classroom. Um, we have a connection with the zoo, um, that's really robust. And we have a very, very strong relationship with the Uehiro Academy at UH. Right. So that's the philosophy for children, um, program over there, and actually so much so that for the past, I think, 12 or 15 years, a very long time, teachers from Waikiki School go to Japan every summer for two weeks to share about p for c Hawaii and learn from Japanese educators. Wow. And I was able to do that two years ago, and it was incredible, and I we still... Uh, we're also a very open school. Uh, we have been historically things are a little bit different now, but we have visitors. I mean, it's just open. I'll have P for C, and I'll have a visitor almost every week. And I it's so much so that I have a guest book. Started a guest book so that I could just keep track of who, who are these lovely people. And they're they're predominantly Japanese professors who come to Hawaii to learn about philosophy for children. Um, but that's a very robust. Uh, relationship we have. And we have mentors that come to our school and are pretty much in residence here. And that has been amazing for the teachers to, you know, just grow and build on their philosophy for children practice because they have the mentors and they have each other to bounce ideas off of. So there's still lots lot more we can do, but mm. I mean, that's our philosophy, you know, make the connections and, and, and grow together.
1: Wow, you know I had a similar conversation with a group of faculty at Alawai Elementary which is just down the road from you Um, Mm -hmm. and they also mentioned the community connections as well that that was something that they wanted to be evaluated on and they put up this matrix in front of me of all of these connections that they'd made, and I was astonished. It was just amazing. The Alawai Watershed Project, um, mm-hmm. the Aquarium—it was just—and it, it, just think of what that means for the kids to be able to connect with these organizations um, and programs yeah, yeah. and to know what's going on. So that's very cool. So, mm-hmm. so Lori, um, as we come down to the end here, I, I want to ask you one more thing, but I'm going to set it up with a with a quick story. So my day job here, um, I work at Apple at Ala Moana, the Ala Moana mm-hmm. Center, um, and of course the, the great love of my life is doing this podcast. But um, mm-hmm. at my day job, I, I have a colleague, um, and this colleague's daughter actually goes to Waikiki Elementary, and oh. I'm, I'm Instagram friends with this colleague. And I remember one one night, uh, this was about a year ago when he posted a photo of his daughter holding a special certificate and um, she had been named Mindful Student of the Month. And, you know, throw out all the other evaluations and grades and or marks or anything. This colleague of mine was just over the moon about this, this thing that she this this distinction that she had gotten. So this is this is my opportunity to ask you about something that I think is truly remarkable, which is that Waikiki Elementary has a mindfulness center on campus. So mm-hmm. if you could talk about that a little bit, that would be a great way to bring this conversation to a close.
0: Yeah. Um, so you know, when Cece was talking about how she would want the school to be measured, in um, in my response to that high up on the list would be uh, the dispositions and attitudes that our students leave with. And at our school at Waikiki, we have the mindful habits and it's, it's the backbone, it's the umbrella, it's everything to us. And it's it's in every lesson and every way we speak and how we celebrate our students. So the mindful habits, just to name a few would be, uh, you know, flexibility in thinking or using humor and joy or thinking about your thinking. Or being a responsible risk taker, and it's so infused in our in how we teach and and how we interact with each other that it's really it's not just uh, something we say; it's something we live. And as, when I came here, you know, over six years ago, I didn't know anything about it. And guess what? I didn't receive any formal training at all. I just lived it and learned it. And now my my children go here. And we, we, we talk this way every day. I remember um, being at the airport several years ago um, and there was a delay. We were on our way back from Boston, back to Hawaii, and there was a delay and they were asking for people to give up their seat and take a later flight. And I heard a family say to their uh, mother and father say to the children, you know, let's be, you know, let's be flexible in our thinking. Let's, let's, let's take the later, the later flight so we can get, you know, the credit for a new flight. And I thought to myself, they wow. are from Waikiki school <laughs> right. and lo and behold they were. So it's, it's, um, it's not just the students, it's the teachers, it's the families. We all, um, we all not only talk to, talk, the talk, but we walk the walk. It's deeply entrenched. It starts at kindergarten. Actually it starts at preschool. So we have the mindful learning center, which is just an amazing place. So we have a preschool here and it's, it's housed in the mindful learning center. We actually have students physically on campus um, all through the week there, but in the after hours, you know, pre pandemic, there were also just amazing community partnerships there. We had a Kupuna program where um, we had a kapuna and um, Keiki playing um, ukulele together. It was just a free program. You could just sign up and go there and, you would have your, you know, tutu and and your kid learning ukulele together. There's language classes there, so it's just this. Um, it's kind of starting to make reality that idea of keeping all the talents together and and making it a, a really all encompassing school community where we have all these opportunities right in one place. So um, it's a really special, special school, and. Um, and it's a lot of because of these dispositions that we mm-hmm. that we embrace, and we we are uh, Art Costa is the man who uh, started us with these dispositions over thirty years ago, and he comes to us every year, and he doesn't come so much as a prescribed uh, professional development practitioner. He comes as a friend. I mean, it's really special. It's really special. It's kind of you know it, it brings back the humanity into teaching and learning you know and um and i think that that is something that we should all aspire to is you know remember first and foremost we're all a human community um and just kind of start with that and go from there
1: that's fantastic Lori, mm-hmm. thank you so much for this conversation today i would love to invite you back to be perhaps the final guest in this season, which would be next April. Um, let, if, if you're willing, I would love to to do that interview at the very end of season two and we can catch up on what's going to happen this year. Um, and, yes. and there were so many other questions I wanted to ask you today anyway. Uh, based on your writing, so there's there's lots that we could talk about, but let's get together again in April and we'll do the last episode of the season if if you're willing to do that.
0: Yeah, this was a true joy. I I truly appreciate it. And if I may, Josh, I'm kind of dorky, but I really like poetry. And I just to any any educator who is listening to this, I just want to read one short. Short paragraph from a poem that I read every year at the beginning of school, and it's called "To Be of Use" by Marge uh, Marge Percy. Perfect. And I'm just going to read one little excerpt. Um, the people I love the best jump into work head first. I love people who harness themselves to an ox, to a he- like an ox to a heavy cart, who pull like water buffalo with massive patience who strain in the mud and the muck to move things forward who do what has to be done again and again so that's just an excerpt but i'd like to you know just honor you know i'm just one of so many incredible teachers who do what has to be done with massive patience Again and again. So I think you know, you know, just to be here is a pleasure, but it's really an honor to to work among all these amazing, hardworking, patient um, educators that that are doing what has to be done again and
1: again. Awesome. Thank you, Laurie, for all you're doing on behalf of our young learners. And please, you and your family, stay safe.
0: Thank you so much.
1: And now it's time for a listener review. This one comes from the Trav HI, who, as it turns out, was one of my former students at La Pietra, Hawaii School for Girls. In the test podcast, Josh mentioned a moment in time where he took learning to another level with online discussions and taking learning beyond the four walls of the classroom at LP. I was there 18 years ago when he had the courage to make a difference. Looking forward to listening to all the segments hosted by Josh. He is an innovative, deep thinker. Wow, this review makes my day. Thank you, the Trav HI. I promise to keep taking this series to another level for you and for all the educators out there who we call our listeners. The What School Could Be in Hawaii podcast is brought to you by Josh Rapoon Productions. Your host is me, Josh Rapoon. My editor, show consultant, and sound engineer is Daniel Gilad at DG Sound Creations. Daniel, an amazing musician, created the original music heard in these episodes. To learn more about Daniel or to hire him for your next music gig, see our show notes, where you will find his email address and Facebook URL. This series is funded by Education Change Agent Ted Dintersmith executive producer of the documentary film Most Likely to Succeed and author of the bestseller What School Could Be. Send your feedback to MLTSinHawaii at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Hawaii. If you like this series, give us a rating and review at your favorite podcast store. Finally, please like our Most Likely to Succeed in Hawaii Facebook page and YouTube channel. Until the next episode, please stay safe, wear your masks, keep socially distant, and be kind to one another. Our world needs an abundance of kindness and compassion right now. See you soon.